Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Igor Sarsky. Last name is spelled S-A-R-S-K-Y. And if you're watching this on Rockfin, you'll just see one of our older shows. Our last show we did uh, was with Jim Smith, but we will have, this will be our fourth total show solo. So there's three other shows we've done. I've included the transcripts of two in my book, Global Death Cult, so you can read those if you're interested. And I'm also going to add the uh, interviews with the Adam Waffen member, Theodore, to the book as well once I do my second edition. So I might as well mention that I'm raising money to put together a documentary on that subject. So I kind of have all the information. It should be easy to compile. But if you're interested in supporting that project, please go to Indiegogo. Just look up Global Death Cult. You can email me or go to my Patreon. I have a lot of posts on my Patreon page about... Uh, that project, but it should be done. The turnaround time should be very fast. Uh, I don't expect it to go past April at all, actually. And we're almost at March. Today is February 22nd, 2023, 27th, excuse me, 2023. But uh, he has a lot of updates. A lot of things are going on. You know, strange things are happening in the world. So I'm delighted to have him back. So Igor, Igor Sarsky, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Will. I enjoy being here. <laughs> cool, man. It's always great to talk with you. Super informed. Like you were the one who kind of to, uh, told me about the order of nine angles that sent me down a, down a path of research, which actually led to my most recent book that was published 2021. So it's due for an update. So much has happened even in the last couple of years. There's a lot of information to be added to that, but uh, there are things happening in the world. Like these, we were talking kind of the pre-show this these recent cases um, in Chicago and Minnesota and all this stuff, but uh, where do you want to get started? Where do you want to lead into everything? Sure. So, I mean, it seemed like the, uh, the first video we did was pretty well received um, for people who kind of haven't seen any of our previous videos. We, we pretty much focused on um, the Anton Long manuscripts, which are essentially the canon uh, as most people know now, the canon that birthed the ONA ideology and inspired uh, like all future writings, all contemporary ONA paragons and their writings are all inspired by that original canon, um, which makes it such a particularly interesting thing to research. Yes, very much so. Very much. So that canon could best be described, as we said in our first video, as kind of Satanism elite. And it's it's stylized for people who view themselves as a higher class or noble um, person, um, kind of in political or in social stature, um, kind of styling as stylizing itself kind of as authentic Satanism um, when compared with more mainstream or public versions of Satanism. Um, so we talked about how the main object of the philosophy was to affect aeonic change or is to affect aeonic change. And I mean, for people who don't know what that means, it can generally be translated to evolutionary or generational change, um, which is not which is not a unique occult concept to the ONA. Right. Crowley talked about aeonic change as well. He believed in the new aeon of Horus. So aeon is kind of like thousands of years, a, a completely new era in human events here. Yeah, long-term change as opposed to short-term change. And I think it's also very common in Scientology as well, that type of you know thought process. Um, but um, I, w what differentiates kind of 
the ONA's form of Satanism over more mainstream brands is the fact that they advocate extreme measures to achieve this aonic change. So a lot of other brands of Satanism or brands of the occult, they're into aonic change in some way or form, but they're not really that extreme in the sense that they're not willing to kill people to achieve their goal. Right. So, Or at least openly say it, right? So they may have the uh, concept of aonic change, like some of these other characters. Crowley definitely did Parsons and Hubbard were kind of a... Uh, people involved in creating a whole new magical worldview. But yeah, they not they none of those people overtly advocated flat out selecting an opera, right? Or yeah, well I think just it's too dangerous in general. Um you have to operate kind of like the ONA operates to be able to do that kind of like open source. Everybody's using a pseudonym. You don't know who's writing any particular individual who they're who's writing under which synonym when at what time at what time like in I mean, there's there's speculation that Anton Long or Myatt, who wrote under Anton Long in the 60s or the 80s, um, between the 60s and the 90s, um, after after that, there's speculation that somebody else was writing as Anton Long. And I think that there's actually good evidence to that to that effect as well. Interesting. And what, Stephen Brown, too, was another pseudonym. And that's, yeah, that, no, that's the way no. that's the only way that they could ever get away with that. Right. That type of literature. Right, good point. And I think that one of the journalists that ties into the Daniel Hussein case, the guy who killed two women at a birthday party in North Western London, was that it tied it back to um, this one writer in Utah who was writing supposedly for the Temple of Blood under a fake name, um, but tied into kind of ONA ideas. So that was kind of an interesting insight. His name was... Uh, Is that DeSimone? Yeah, DeSimone was the journalist, and the guy who was writing in Utah was the rug cleaner. I forgot his name right now. I see his face. It was uh, the guy who was writing about, you know, your wishes will be granted by some demon. Are you talking about Sutter? Uh, no, he wrote, that guy, he wrote for Temple of Blood, for, uh, but he was a Utah Satanist who wrote, it was... Um, I think I know what you're talking about. It's not coming to mind, though, either. Yeah, which is odd. My brain. I, I, it'll come to me in a second. So yeah. one yeah. of the most controversial aspects about extreme measures to achieve aonic change that exist in the ONA kind of Anton Long manuscripts is this particular form of extreme negative eugenics called culling or human culling which uh, seemed to be quite a popular topic with a lot of people. Uh, it's kind of a topic that kind of supersedes the ONA and kind of bleeds into other areas of the occult um, and um, neo-Nazi, neo-Nazism as well um, in terms of negative eugenics. Um, so this quote by Anton Long kind of, I think, perfectly encapsulates how important culling is to the doctrine, which... I mean, I don't think a lot of invest people who are researching the ONA um, impress upon how important they place this aspect of the philosophy. And if they did, they probably would realize or they probably would come to the same conclusions that I do, that there's some danger here um, with potential real life crimes. Um, but so the quote is that culling is one of the primary things which serves to distinguish us, our sinister kind, from those who pretend to be sinister of the left hand path or who describe themselves as Satanists, but who lack our inner sinister nature. And that's an Anton Long quote from the Culling uh, texts. So the analysis of that is essentially pretty, pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It's that um, 
if you're following the ONA and you're a true ONA follower, you have to believe in the culling doctrine. And most anyone who doesn't isn't truly um, sinister in nature. If they're not real, right? So for just, just, just from that quote alone, anybody who claims to be ONA, um, they're either claiming that they've called or they're just not technically ONA from Anton Long's standards, which I think is important because at the end of the day, people who are reading this, impressionable people, you have raw nudagems of the world who are reading this um, this doctrine, um, they they take this as gospel, right? Right. So, um, I'm trying to find. Let's see, Daniel, who's saying this is the guy who did Lucifuge, Rosafile, or Rofaxile, or whatever. That's the guy who killed these two ladies, heaven. But he was tied into a guy who was writing for the ONA, according to Daniel DeSimone, DeSimone, or how you pronounce it. Yeah, I mean, we can we can kind of get into the Temple of Blood. We didn't really talk about that. There's been a lot of recent research about federal connections to the ONA. Um, uh, I'm fine getting into that uh, in a little bit. Um, let me just finish on this tangent. Yeah, go for it. Um, so... So basically the concept of calling, it's just so, so core to the ONA philosophy that you have to wonder um, why more journalists who are covering this aren't pointing this out. Um, but so the interesting part about calling, and as I said, I was, a, I was an SFK researcher before I even saw the ONA. Um, I, the reason why p- people are so interested in the connection between the ONA and the SFK and the reason why our, our first video was so successful is because people see the connections between the victim typology of a culling victim and the modus operandi of culling victim of, of how to achieve a culling. And they see the connections in real life. Um, and they, it kind of resonated with them a little bit. And I think I kind of want to touch about, I want to kind of like um, expand a little bit about that, expand on that a little bit, because at the end of the day, that's, it's seemingly that's where people were most interested. And I see that there's a lot that have kind of, is kind of on, it hasn't been touched upon yet. So um, yeah, go for it. So here's another quote from Anton Long just to start this. So all cullings conform to certain satanic principles, the most important of which is that victims are victims of their own nature. The act of culling, which results in someone being a victim, is really just natural consequences arising from the defects of character which the victim possesses and which are revealed by the defective deeds of the victim. So that's just directly from the culling text, a quote from Anton Long. So, so in other words, culling is the ability to mimic the natural consequences that occur as a result of morally defective character, because these consequences don't necessarily occur enough naturally to, pr- to prune humanity sufficiently. Right. right? So you're trying to mimic the, what would happen now, like this person is going to drown anyway, or this person is going to get hit by a train anyway. So we facilitate that, right? right? Isn't that the idea? Correct. And that's what's so interesting about the SFK killings is that the, the victim is believed by the general society to have succumbed to a drowning accident as a result of the fatal flaw that they personally have, which is alcoholism, degeneracy, decadence, whatever you want to call it, whatever kind of you know, term um, you're going to refer to it as, but it's just their inability to have morally um, strong character. They put themselves in, 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 
in poor situations because of their bad character. Um, and they end up being drowned. Um, it's almost, it is a natural consequence, right? People perceive alcoholism, alcohol in water to be, you know, very dangerous when put together. Right. Yes. So, okay. so, so what's, I don't think we touched upon the fact that um, you, the, the effect of culling has like a, so there's like a tripartite eugenic effect of culling. So in general, people think of the utilitarian aspect of culling, right? Which is one part of the tripartite, which is the concept that humanity will be physically better off by eliminating certain traits from the gene pool, right? Utili purely, purely utilitarian. Um, and the second, the second part of that tripartite is also kind of easy to understand. It's the aesthetic aspect of it, right? Improving the beauty of humanity from an artistic perspective, right? So when, right. so it's not utilitarian in the sense that you, it's going to help humanity, but it's more so just it looks better, right? Humanity, humanity is more artistically pleasing if certain elements um, don't exist, um, which is an interesting aspect because there is a lot of talk about um, aesthetics. Um, as it relates to eugenics and how, you know, essentially what eugenics is, is art, right? You are essentially trying to make humanity more beautiful or more um, stronger or stronger, just stronger in general or, or more beautiful by, by shedding off ugly elements of it. Um, and the third, but so those are the two parts that people understand, right? The eugenics or the utilitarian and the aesthetic part of culling, right? That's kind of what, where they, think it ends but in reality those are the two least important parts um and i, I i'll definitely in, like your opinion on this but the opinion the reason why i believe that the least important parts is because it doesn't actually affect fully what they want to affect which is aonic change right so if you find um if you kill a victim let's say you go out and shoot a victim in the head um you're you're, it's a victim that is, you know, perceived as a burden on society. It checks the boxes of the utilitarian. It checks the boxes of the aesthetic. But really, what change are you affecting with one person, or let's say a thousand people? I mean, you're, it's it's a drop in the bucket, right? Around the world, there's um, there's still going to be degeneracy. There's still going to be people drinking. There's still going to be bad morals, and society's still going to be going crashing down if that's what you believe so why why would killing a couple people have any um killing let's say you know a very very tiny minute percentage of the people that you believe are wrong and are are, are the bad element in society it, it doesn't do anything um which is why you need the third aspect which is the psychological aspect right interesting i finally found the guy's name ea coetting was his name that was uh, the yes. guy named Daniel, but they're saying that guy was a member of the ONA, so they removed him off of this stuff. But yeah, that was Simone. That's him right there. His name is Matthew Lawrence. It's weird. I was in a like an interview with that guy, Truth Stream Radio or Truth Frequency Radio in 2010. Isn't that weird? Did you? And that was before. Yeah, that was way before you were doing ONA work, so you had no way idea. before. I had no. I mean, he might not even have been writing for the ONA. Quitting except, except being in the order organization. One book states he joined with an American cell of the notorious British Order of Nine Angles and shoved himself beyond morality and humanity. Wow. That's his admission, according to this. 
So beyond morality is the aspect of nihilism, right? So that's that's a big part in kind of, you know, left-hand path Satanist. And it's not nihilism in the sense that, you know, everything is worthless, so go out and drink yourself to death. It's nihilism in the sense that you want to reduce everything to a intrinsic value of zero, or you want to reduce everything to a basic value of zero, so then you can turn around and use your senses to assess what has intrinsic value and assess intrinsic value to certain things from the basis of zero, as opposed to the basis that society places on certain things like like, you know, uh, just, you know, things that aren't necessarily don't have any intrinsic value, but are, but are present in society, um, which is right. kind of like that. That's how nihilism works into the thought process is you want to reduce everything to zero, but then you want to assign your own values, become your own God, like the Nietzschean kind of aspect of it. Right. Right. So Nietzsche is very important, but just to read this, Coetting's works openly discussed and encourage murder. One of his texts he recently promoted on YouTube advises people to study terrorist methods, quotes the Moore's murderer Ian Brady and states, always remember the first rule of murder, never kill a person that you have a reason to kill. The text was written for an American <laughs> Satanist group, Temple of Blood, whose violent material has appeared as an influence on seven young, young men recently convicted of neo-Nazi terror offenses. So they're advocating for motiveless killing. Right. Where, what does that sound familiar? Very familiar. Part of a larger British organization, Order of Nine Angles, its extremist material advocates child murder or sexual violence with members appearing at the sites of dreadful crimes to celebrate what happened. Crazy. So, so we, were we were talking about the psychological aspect, and that's the most important because it changes the way people think. And as a consequence, it changes how they live their lives, how they raise their children, how future generations think. It's the most important element of culling because each specific death in of itself is only the removal of a very minute percentage of the problem. The only way to like truly affect evolutionary change is through the first two elements being checked, but also through the psychological element and how the death or the tragedy is perceived by the public and how it affects their perception and their psychological, like their psyche. Um, and this kind of leads into Greek tragedy, which is a very important aspect of kind of the occult. And Anton Long himself is you know, known for, for uh, translating uh, Aeschylus and Euripides. And um, what's so interesting about Greek tragedy is it gives you perfect insight into the psychological aspect of culling and why the, the perception of the death, right? So we go back to the quote that I wrote, I read about Anton Long is that the, the act of culling, which, uh, which results in someone being a victim is really just natural consequences. So he's saying that He's basically saying that that's how it has to be perceived, right? It just has to be perceived as natural consequences, right? They were they were a degenerate. They put themselves in a terrible position. Um, they right, which is not necessarily true, right? I've I've been a bear, very big advocate of that that the victims are stereotyped for their for their um, lifestyle, but that's the way people perceive it is that the victim had a fatal flaw, and as a result of their fatal flaw, they. Um, succumb to drowning um and that's why this leads into greek tragedy because that's very similar to greek tragedy in that the actual purpose of greek tragedy on the stage was to allow certain feelings and lessons to be felt and learnt by the audience within a safe confines of viewership so the viewer that's kind like of the purpose of of drama from the beginning right it all goes cor back to greek correct Aeschylus, greek stuff yeah wow and exactly. that's what the smiley face means Smiling through tragedy. There's a yes. tragedy component to the smiley face. 
the the esoteric meaning of the smiley face. And I'm getting into that here. That's you just nailed it because yeah, the psychological. Be, be no, no, no. You're you're right in. You're right on it because that's this. You just hit the psychological aspect of it, which is the 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 Greek tragedy function aspect of the smiley face killer, which is why I want where I want to lead into this, which is where my theory gets interesting because, as I said. Um, there is no culling without the psychological aspect of it, which is ensuring that the death is perceived in a certain way by the public. Um, right, right. And that gets, that validates the entire correlation or connection between the symbol and the, these deaths. That's correct. Right. Correct. So, yeah, so right from the beginning. Yeah. So, so the viewer kind of, as it relates to Greek tragedy and catharsis, uh, the viewer of the tragedy, the person who's viewing the tragedy or the person who reads about it in the news or hears about it from a friend, they superimpose themselves onto the tragic hero and they kind of absorb lessons and feelings that the writer inserts into the story as a means to affect psychological change. Um, and so the writer, the writer essentially tra transmits um, psychologically transmits the fatal flaw of the tragic hero onto the audience. And through this process, the audience gains a cathartic release from emotions, which might have otherwise put them in similar situations in their life. Interesting. So think about that from an angle of the smiley face killers, how the deaths are perceived by people um, to be as a result of the fatal flaw, which is the degeneracy, which is putting themselves in bad situations, which is not having moral character. I know I'm not saying that that's the case, but that's how society perceives these deaths. No um, doubt. That's the, that's the biggest ruse of the entire phenomenon is that everybody's saying, oh, these guys were out partying or they drank too much. Therefore, this is a tragedy. What a loss, you know. Their lifestyles, their lifestyles. Yeah, the were parents the reason. didn't raise them yeah. right. They were doing, you know, it really is. Uh, like, and what are they, it, what do they go and do in their real lives after saying what you just said? After making those comments, what do they go and do in their real lives? The victims or the victims' families or the people? People in general, victims, families, people who hear about it, people who make they those just comments. Hear about it's a tragedy that you know that was their own you know moral failing. That's what led to their these boys' deaths. And then psychologically, in their own life, they go and they live and they have it in their mind to not put themselves in that situation because they've already experienced it, like through a cathartic release, right? They've seen the death, um, and that's so that's essentially where Greek tragedy gets interesting because. Greek tragedy that the 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 element that they were trying to superimpose upon the audience was the element of uh, hubris versus sophistry. So the so the tragic flaw in tragedies was hubris, and they were teaching people not to be hubristic in their uh, everyday lives, but instead uh, exercise sophistic behavior. And sophistry is the antonym of hubris, and it can best be described, or it's it's described it's it's defined as uh, moderation. Um, but that's also not just the Greek drama, but that's their philosophy too, right? Correct. The hubris and, you know. They built the philosophy into Greek tragedy, and they, the Greek tragedy was the function in which people learned to not live hubristically, but instead exercise sophistry, because they might find themselves in the exact scenario the tragic hero was in, and they're going to be different. They're going to be better. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're right. They're gonna change uh, the way that evolution exists by, by you know raising their kids right and teaching their kids about you know the dangers of this and that right um, even goes into aesop's fables right so you have aesop yeah. the, the guy looking too long into the his reflection drowns um 
the guy flies too high up and towards the sun, right? Which, uh, which Icarus, Icarus. Icarus, yes. There's also a, I think there's another guy where he steals his father's, uh, uh, his father's chariot and drowns. I don't know if that, I think, I can't remember what that one's called, uh, or who that, anyways. So, so this kind of, this aspect of psychological change, right? Stylizing a death to ensure that it has maximum psychological impact on people, right? Um, just kind of goes back to the idea of the pharmacon in ancient Greek social ritual, which I'd like to kind of mention because I think it's just, I think it's just a fantastic tangent. Yeah, Aeschylus there, father of Greek tragedy. Um, so the pharmacon is kind of a close concept to Rene Girard's scapegoat mechanism. Interesting. So, and the pharmacon is an, it's in uh, is an, it's an ancient Greek ancient Greek social ritual of catharsis, cleansing, and sacrifice. So think of so just just you're gonna have to you're gonna have to go and look this up yourself. But think about the words very carefully if you're listening to this. A social ritual of catharsis, cleansing, and sacrifice. The victims pharmacoi were required whenever a threat real or imagined, destabilize the borders and hierarchies of a community to the point of crisis. So we have the pharmacon is the actual ritual and the pharmacoi are the sacrificed, right? Whenever How do you spell th- that? How do you spell pharmacon? F-P-H-A-R-M R-M Yeah, and then A-K-O-N With a K With a K instead of a C, yeah there you go. Concept entered Jack Jacques Derrida. Pharmacon, a word that needs to be the remedy poison or scapegoat. There you go. So it's very close to the idea of of uh, of of uh, it's very it's rooted in the uh, not in the word pharmacy, right? right. Um, so 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 I'm just reading a passage here from from a scholarly article. So pharmacon is an ancient Greek social ritual of catharsis, cleansing, and sacrifice. The victims pharmacoi, which is spelled the same way but with an I instead of the I, instead of the um, N at the end, um, pharmacoi, um, were required whenever a threat real or imagined to stabilize the borders and hierarchies of a community to the point of crisis. So whenever a community was in a crisis, they had to commit this social ritual to cleanse individuals in the community. Um, wow. And that that's goes back to Girard, right? He said that scapegoating is crucial to societies. Correct. All societies have a scapegoat. Yeah. So, Jewish. I mean, you yeah. can just go all the way through all the wars, the Holocaust, the Christian. I mean, the what do you call it? The Armenian genocide. These were all scapegoats. These were all people like we got to get rid of this poisonous thing. We got, and so they're scapegoating people within the ONA philosophy too, right? Scapegoating the. What do you call it? Homo hubriati or whatever they call it. Correct. So, so when that so whenever there's a threat, real or imagined, so some of the threats can be described as disease, war, famine, lack of resources. Um, when they when 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 there's a crisis that disrupts the community to the point of escalating, quelling this becomes a psychic and social necessity to avoid irreversible damage. And so how do you quell it? You could quell it through the pharmacon ritual. So a pharmacoi would be, cho- would be chosen from among the marginalized and either ritually murdered or exiled. 
typically bathed, adorned, or treated as sacred. This act of unifying violence through sacrifice would expel not just the victim, but also all the social ills that the victim would come to represent. All evil, violent, and immoral acts become associated with the pharmacos regardless of his guilt. Hmm. Which is essentially what's happening with the smiley face killers. There's a lot of scapegoating going on, right? Absolutely. There's no people, people scapegoating the actual lifestyles of the victims as the major reason why they died while avoiding basically any other evidence that would point to the contrary or, or, or discounting it or thinking that, it, you know, it's not strong enough to, to convince me. Um, so the, the pharmacos is therefore granted enormous power by the community because he has the means to both destroy it and save it. It is no accident that the root word pharma means both poison and cure. This paradoxical, dub, paradoxical double meaning demonstrates the power of scapegoating as a curative violence ends as cur, as curative violence ends poisonous violence. Right. So that's what's happening with the smiley face killers, in my opinion, is you have curative violence meant to end a social ill, right, or something that they believe is 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 negatively affecting evolution within society. Um, and the important part about that is ensuring that the deaths are perceived to be associated with that ill, right? And right. as you'll see in the pharmacos in the scapegoating ritual, it has to be untrue, right? The, the scapegoat, it has to be a lie and society has to believe the lie, um, mm -hmm. which is actually what's happening. Everyone has believed the lie, which is that these people were just way too drunk and succumbed to an accident, Um and, you know, they think in their mind they have the psychological change about how they want to live their lives differently than this, than the tragic hero, how they, how, how they want to teach their kids so they, their kids don't uh, succumb to the tragic, what the tragic heroes came to, and inevitably generational change. Um, so it has, that's the motivation. That's the purpose. That's why these are not like, uh, they, they're, they're random, but they're meant to be random, but there is intent behind it, right? So. So think yeah, about the word the weirdest kind of crime. Yeah, correct. Think about the word staged accidents. Well, how often do we see? Did we see that in writing? How often is that? That's probably just in the calling text. The word staged accidents is there two or three times. Um, but you always have people fake suiciding, fake drowning. I mean, when people commit crimes, they're always trying to make them look like an accident. Like in my hometown, a guy literally killed his wife, and then the he threw her down the stairs to make it look like, hey, she tripped down the stairs. But then they found out that she was dead before. You chucked her down the stairs. Um, so these happen without, you know, maybe I don't know what he was reading, but they happen outside of these kind of satanic philosophies. Anton Long says specifically a particularly strong way to develop satanic character is to uh, use staged accidents. He's highlighting staged accidents as the best modus operandi for culling. <laughs> and what's so sick about what's so crazy and sick about staged accidents is it is the perfect way to achieve the tri triple effect necessary for the for the for the negative eugenics, right? The triple effect that we talked about, which is the uh, utilitarian, the aesthetic, and the psychological. There's actually very little ways to kind of check all three boxes, um, because if you go out and kill somebody, you shoot them in the head. The death isn't perceived as being something that they did themselves. They're not a scapegoat, right? The death is um, perceived as being the, the person who killed them's fault, right? They 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 through no fault of their own, they died. <laughs> Um, but the staged accident, right? So, um, so wow. you can, yeah, you can, sorry, you can choose a specific victim, 
right? That represents artistic and utilitarian elements of culling. Um, but, and you can, and you can also achieve the psychological aspect necessarily uh, necessary because you're able to stage or alter the way in which people perceive the death of the morally deficient person and the fatal flaw, which ultimately was responsible for their death. There's no other way for you to stop for the, you to get the latter aspect without staging the way in which it's perceived by the public, unless it's just right. a natural death, unless the death, which really was a natural accident, which doesn't happen right. enough to cause the cathartic effect unnecessary to have the proper evolution, which is why. Right. Maybe. But that intent, the thought behind it, if all these, I mean, I don't know how many of these people are, you know, rigid followers of the ONA who may, may possibly, or whoever is committing these SFK, but it shows there that some of these people might be thinking about the after effects and the impression. And that's crucial to the, to the sequence of events is like, they're going to, I'm will, willing to, I want this impression to be made to the public and the police that this was a tragic accident. I mean, it really is something else. I mean, they, they're thinking about it. They're not just trying to commit the crime. They're trying to, they're also staging the outcome. So I've never said this on, on camera, this, this kind of little tangent, but it leads into right what you were saying there. And I believe it's such a great point is that there's a specific reason why college age kids, college towns and areas around colleges are targeted. The cathartic effect from these deaths reverberate around tight-knit communities of malleable young minds, minds who have yet to make their most important life decisions, like raising their children or, you know, which job to go to or which, which like how hard to study in college, right? Or, you know, like all of these decisions they're currently have yet to make. So they're the most impressionable, the most likely to be able to affect future change is through those young, malleable minds. Targeting, targeting adults in this sense is not effective because adults have already made most of their important life choices, including what lifestyles they want to live, how they want to raise their children. There's nothing left to psychologically affect as it relates to evolution. Degeneracy. And yeah, like there's nothing left. Like, what do you like? What, what do you think on that point? I think it makes sense. I mean, I think that that's yeah. Degeneracy, alcoholism, and decadence is a culture that's synonymous with higher education, right? Higher education culture. Right? Oh, it's part of the process, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if it anybody is. was untouched by that. Yeah. Correct. It is. So by targeting these individuals, you're having the psychological effect at the most crucial time in the most important people's lives where they can actually decide to work hard, make something of themselves, raise their children, to have strong moral character, and uh, rather than succumb to like a hedonistic lifestyle synonymous with college. Um, right. oh, interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Also, I think just to take it one step further, it's kind of no wonder why most of the why the why the most obvious SFK footprint exists in Wisconsin. Um, why is that? Just most drinking. It's indoors. Correct. The outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. From a practical perspective, it, if you're trying to achieve them like the highest or the strongest psychological impact from how the death is perceived you would target areas where you perceive the most issues to be present. And Wisconsin is an interesting case because it's statistically known as the drunkest state in the U S it has been for a while. Most, most colleges in Wisconsin are connected to the university of Wisconsin system. So it has 23 universities and 26 camp or uh, 13 universities and 26 campuses, I believe across the entire state, which all under the university of Wisconsin banner. So it's a, it's a basically um, the college culture that exists there 
is within that web of universities and is partially responsible for the state's drinking stats. And it certainly could be perceived that way. Yeah, like Wisconsin say, used to be like the biggest brewery state too in the whole country. And there, I mean, there's still probably tons of breweries and things like that. Yeah. Correct. Beer and cheese, beer and cheese. So the interesting part is that, so the, the cathartic effect that you'd achieve in Wisconsin would be more, um, would be larger than other areas because it would reverberate within the web of the university of Wisconsin system, um, which are all under the same university, right? They're, they're different, they're, they're different campuses and some are different universities, but they're all under the same banner, which is the same system of universities. Um, so it's almost like it's like state sanctioned. And it's interesting, as I said, why Wisconsin was being targeted. Um, may, you know, the killers right. were looking to have the, the maximum effect on the way people, you know, viewed, uh, that lifestyle makes sense, assuming that you know that these are all people who've come across this ideology. Yeah. Well, that's what's interesting is I think what so you were we, you know about the 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 satanic letters of Stephen Brown, obviously. I think you yeah, did a whole, chapter, yeah, a whole chapter exactly. I mean, that satanic letters of Stephen Brown, it's pretty um, obvious that the culling doctrine is not unique to the ONA. Uh, and rather the ONA was just a vessel which transmitted this kind of like oral esoteric knowledge to the public in writing. Um, so it's, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say that it's just the ONA that you have to be worried about because he's, right. Right. he's talking with another, he's talking with uh, the temple of set and uh, um, Aquino. Uh, Aquino and, um, and there he's basically saying that, um, that, uh, yeah, Stephen Brown said, Aquino, we know that's what you guys do in the inner core of your Temple of Set is these kind of murder type stuff. So. And Aquino was chastising them for releasing it, saying it's dangerous to release this type of information. Right? Right. So that's a good point. It's not just the ONA. It's not just the Order of Nine Angles. It's just that these ideas have gotten out. I mean, the other thing is that, I mean, if you look at this whole case with Daniel Hussein and EA Quetting, they only came to my attention that this guy was part of the Order of Nine Angles after this Daniel Hussein killed these kids, uh, women back in 2020. So that's just another example of like where these ideas come to a surface. I mean, it's credit to Daniel DeSimone, or however you say his name, but that he surfaced this knowledge of this guy, Ian Coatings, associated with the ONA and the Temple of Blood. Yeah, and a lot of people, a lot of people realize that this kind of negative eugenics thought process stems way deep into you know neo-Nazi thought, and goes Absolutely. all the way back to the Anna Nairby, um in World War II and uh, and von List and you know all these guys, right? Right, and Hitler, the whole bit. Hitler was not some kind of uh, he wasn't as much of an outlier as he was just kind of put a lot of these ideas into action, like he really thought all that stuff. Yeah, so the just kind of the, the best way where I can kind of like sum up how this kind of like psychological aspect affects the, the SFK cases is through like this, the concept of degenerate art, right? So technically speaking, like from a perspective of like a Girardian Nietzsche and view degenerate art perpetuates degenerate culture through imitation mimesis. Like we, we, we see degenerate art and it, it kind of like changes the way our culture is, right? Because we, we copy, you know, the art and we want to be like our famous artists. And But conversely, when you flip that around, right, the psychological impact of the negative eugenics, art, specifically tragedy, which portrays degeneracy as a fatal flaw, also affects people in the same way, right? It creates purification through catharsis, which is 
what Aristotle talks about catharsis, right? At creating purification. And it reduces degenerate culture um, by, by basically turning around mimesis, right? Mimesis being people mimic art. And now, you know, art mimics nature. Interesting, right? Wow. So, um, I mean, we can start chatting about the SFK now. I just kind of wanted to um, do No, do a but it, it is interesting. I mean, you've done such great research into that, like the philosophy, the, the sensibilities. You can just see it pervades all their, all of uh, Mayat's talk and the entire ONA is all that. I mean, it's, it comes out of Nazism. It's no question. It's Nazi occultism, so. But so pe people don't think it's dangerous, though, which is crazy to me. I mean, they don't they 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 see the ONA. They see that the you know, there's this federal report, joint federal report out saying that it's very dangerous. They see that in 2010, Senholt estimated that there was only a couple thousand adherents. But since then, you have people like Sutter, Chloe and Brett Stevens, who have just come out with crazy ONA literature, crazy amounts of ONA literature and and um, and writings and videos or not videos. um. Uh, internet and literature campaigns. That's how I would describe it, right? Because not all of it's literature. Some of it's more like zines, I guess, or like pictures and stuff, like paintings. But there's, a, there's like in the last 13 years, there's been a huge campaign to make the ONA more visible. And with the work of these three individuals over the last 13 years, since Senholt made his kind of like, you know, assessment, I mean, the exponential growth factor of the internet and the fact right. and how hard these guys have been working to pump out literature makes makes it really obvious that this couple of thousand um, quote by Senholt in 2010 is just it's just has gone crazy by now. It has to. Have yeah, no, no, it's it's definitely bigger than that. No question. I mean, you can just look at uh, Ed Sheeran's uh, Bad Habits, which I've kind of rewatched again and again. It's even worse than I thought. But I mean, imagine reaching a half a billion people with one song, at least on YouTube. God knows how many people have listened to the song on the radio or wherever, other things. But he's exposing people to total ONA doctrines, man. Incredible. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think if you wanted, we can chat a little bit about the ONA and the Fed connection. Okay, let's do it. Because that, that's been real. I mean, I, I know a lot of people that are interested in that and just that, right? They're wondering, why are the Feds interested in the ONA? Why are they in this? Who are they targeting? Um, are there murders that we're not we don't know about? Um Right, because the people think, sure. okay, if the if the feds are involved, surely there's a lot of murders, but we haven't heard of a lot. Only recently, we've heard of a bunch. Right, we've heard of like three or four in the last couple of years. Um, but quite frankly, it doesn't make sense because you're thinking, why are the feds involved? Feds have technically been involved for a long time, if you believe some of the research, which makes you think you're like, okay, where's the where's the fire? If there's smoke, right, where's the fire? Um, so I think like the. Um, the ONA federal connection probably you can correct me if you kind of disagree, but it probably stemmed from the um, uh, the Myatt Gladio connections. Right, Combat eighteen. Correct. Um, and there's kind of like a there's kind of like a research. It's, there's nothing's been proven, right? Because the fact that Myatt was a Gladio member, which was proven part of part of a Gladio um, group, doesn't really he prove that he was it, a Fed. Right? Yeah. He admitted it, he, but it doesn't prove he's a Fed. It just it just is strong. It's right. a strong indication that he was. Um, but there's other proof actually, and I think that we've kind of touched upon it before. Um, and I think that, that there's probably pretty good indication that the ONA was m potentially created originally as a honey trap to um to target ex the extreme side of national socialist currents that were involved with colin jordan in the 60s um 
and this opinion is kind of based on the coincidence of Savitri Devi and Myatt being in Jordan's circle at the exact same time that the ONA was purportedly created. Interesting. So, I mean, Devi was described by Goodrick Clark as being Hitler's priestess during the war. <laughs> right. What did and, you say? What was the book she wrote? Was it The Sun and the Lightning Bolt or something like that? Something, something like that. Something and, like that yeah. very, and it, the ONA philosophy is very influenced by her writings. There's a video on YouTube where a guy goes into all the connections between Myatt's writings and Devi's writings, and it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty close. Um, yeah, she they, passed away in 1992. So. And it, it makes sense that there's a connection because Devi and Maya were both in Colin Jordan's circle at the same time. That was proven. Um, right. And when she, just to add, there's a picture of Colin Jordan with Rockwell, right? Who was the American Nazi who ended up getting killed. And I think when Savitri Devi died, her ashes were put in the care of uh, uh, Rockwell. Rockwell, which shows how important she was and subsequently how important the, the philosophy she ha she helped uh, Myatt build or she transmitted to Myatt, right, and how influential that is. The fact that this woman, her ashes were interred at the Nazi – I can't remember what it's called, like the, the Nazi uh, – she was interred somewhere very special to neo-Nazis, but also given to, as you said, um, the, the basically one of the most famous Nazis of all aside from Hitler, which is uh, Rockwell. Um, right, so it says here, I mean, granted, this is Wikipedia, but it says, Debbie's ashes were shipped to the headquarters of the American Nazi Party in Arlington, Virginia, where they were purportedly placed next to those of George Lincoln Rockwell in a Nazi Hall of Honor. So there you go. So it was That's from Goodrick Clark. There you go. Yep. From Goodrick Clark, which is a good source. So she was interred right next to Lincoln Rockwell, which, mm. which really should open some eyebrows and make you think, okay, the ONA isn't just its solitary bubble, right? It right. Had, you have to think of the ONA within the context of its neo-Nazi roots and where it came from. And then you have, and then in my opinion, that's where it really, it has to strike home that it's dangerous. Once you see who it affects and where its roots come from, you have to make the assertion that it's dangerous. Yeah, no Myatt knew Jordan. He was a, an associate of Jordan, uh, Colin Jordan, what was Colin Jordan, right? I think that like they were, you know, very much in the early movement of the Nazi party in, in the UK. So, so Devi, so she's, she was known for being a spy um, for the Axis powers during the war. But I think what's so interesting about her is she seemingly faced no repercussions for her involvement with the Nazis. When they were mm. trying and hanging people in the Nuremberg trial, she was somehow free to travel across Europe and stay active within the National Socialist Movement. This is not possible, in my opinion, if she hadn't flipped or been working for the Allies in some factor. Um, and this is kind of reinforced, I believe you you made this connection where she had she was connected to individuals who are known to be Mossad agents um, or one individual, mm. I believe. I can't remember the name of the guy. Um, oh, she was friends with... Uh... Scorzeni? Otto Scorzeni? Yeah. Otto Scorzeni, yeah, I believe. Yeah, it says here, it. Savitri was an associate of post war years of Francois Dior, Otto Scorzeni. Scorzeni was the guy involved with, uh, with, he was involved with Mossad, right? That was the guy. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Proven Mossad asset. He would set up a lot of these rocket scientists that uh, were hired by Egypt. He would set them up like he would be the, the friend that would set up, and then the Mossad would come in and kill. There was a famous guy that. Uh, he said, but yeah, he was definitely, he was a man, he was super dangerous. <laughs> you don't even, I think he was in it for himself after the war. Um, but there's like a, there's like a picture of him with Hitler. I mean, he was always talking to Hitler and some of these other uh, rough characters. I mean, they're all Australian, Austrian too. So. 
So think about it from a common sense perspective. You have Savitri Devi, who's likely involved with with some in some type of form she was involved in spying during the war and she the only explanation is is that she's working for the other side while she's now traveling the country while basically everyone involved with the nazis was running and you know being hanged in nuremberg so there, right. she had to have, not being rat lined out she meets up names yeah very she meets up with myatt in in jordan circle and the ona is birthed right uh, Might who already has his own kind of Fed connections through Gladio, so to me those two kind of connections really hammer home that it's it probably was likely that Savitri Devi wasn't just some you know Nazi activist who who was you know giving this do- doctrine to Long and working with with Long or Myatt to kind of for her own reasons. It was clear that they were using this to entrap people in Colin Jordan's circle. Um, who they believed as having extreme negative eugenics views, um, which is common with neo national socialists or extreme national socialist no uh, thought process. No Let's see if I can find this is a picture of Rockwell. For people who don't know what Rockwell or Colin Jordan look like, here's a picture of them together. Debbie, it's it's worth pointing out that Debbie also fits the profile of the older female Runwatha who long writes right. transferred the ONA doctrine to him. Um, and I think that that's, that's a pretty, pretty, pretty strong connection to Debbie aside from the fact that their writings are so similar. Right. So that's Colin Jordan on the left, associate of Myatt, and then George Lincoln Rockwell on the right. He was yeah. Why, why, why would Myatt and Debbie both with their federal connections show up in Jordan's circle at the same time and come out with the ONA doctrine? I mean, it's pretty obvious what they were aiming to do. Um, and maybe they succeeded, maybe they don't, didn't. I mean, we wouldn't know if they entrapped the people they wanted to entrap. We would never know. They would never tell us, right? Right. So, But, I mean, I think it would require additional research into Rockwell, Jordan, and Debbie to see how familiar they were with esoteric ideas. I, I would assume Savitri Debbie was very much well-known in that because that's all esoteric Hitlerism is lightning in the sun. But correct. I'm not sure that these two characters really... I mean, I have a cursory understand uh, understanding of both of them, but I never came across them kind of talking about occultism, esotericism, or anything like that. Whereas Myatt, for sure, like Myatt admits all all that stuff, reading Greek history, Crowley, all these characters, he knows all that stuff. But yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, just because there's evidence that the ONA may have been created as an intelligence operation doesn't mean that it should be written off in contemporary society. Um, I mean, the ONA is very indicative of a Frankenstein type of thing that has kind of gone off the rails or is no longer controllable. Um, and I think you kind of see that with what's what's happening is you have lone wolves who are reading this doctrine, these doctrines, and they have sure, these sure. these lone wolves like Nit von Nudigem and uh, Meltzer. They have no idea whether the ONA was originally a operation or not. They have no idea whether right. Long is is serious or or um, being or being uh, manipulative with his writings, they don't know. They just they just read it, make a common sense interpretation, which is what my interpretations have always been, just common sense interpretations of what Long is trying to say. Um, and they they go and do stuff. I mean, they, they, you can't you can't use the fact that it might have been an operation to dissuade you from thinking that it's dangerous in the current age because people don't know. People who are going to absorb this, they just aren't aware of whether or not it is fake or not. It was it was originally fake or not. I mean. Right, but it's 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 ideology 
still is applicable, right? People are still reading it. It's obvious that whatever they unleashed has real world consequences. There's no doubt about it. And these are not, those guys are clearly not Intel assets. So like a lot of the stuff, whereas was Suter obviously has been, you know, busted. Myatt, who knows, you know, but he's been in jail for other things, Myatt has. But I think he just got busted for fencing or something like that. But I um, think if it, if it was an operation, it worked way too well. And it appeared so authentic to the point that it's convinced so many people over the last 50 years and still convinces people to this day, right. Ella Von Nudigem right. and Meltzer. Yeah, and you can, what's the other guy? Fleming in the UK and all these other offshoots that have occult, you know, ideas in them. Fuhrer Krieg, Sonnenkrieg, Adam Waffen, right? Got influ influenced or infiltrated by ONA doctrine. So um, I think that that was their intent, though. That was their um, goal. That was kind of my stated goal in his autobiography. So whether that's dishonest or not, I don't know. But he doesn't, you know, I don't know. Just my, inter yeah. my interpretation of Maya has always been common sense because I, I want to keep it common sense interpretations because that's how I view people like uh, just the typical Joe when he reads these things, how he's going to view it. Right. And how he, what his interpretation is. I'm not making any, like, you know, um, I'm not getting creative with my interpretations. I usually like to read a quote by Anton Long and then I'll, you know, I'll uh, analyze it. And I think that my interpretations are very common sense and that should scare a lot of people because right. you, know, you got to think who, who else is reading this and having the same common sense interpretation. And they're a lot more dangerous than I am. <laughs> right. So, right. And there's known kind of Intel books that have been put out. The, the protocols of the, of the elders of Zion was put together by Russian Intel, but people are still reading that like it's real. Right. They think that this is, and this is, I mean, one of the most effective anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish propaganda pieces ever made. So, I mean, what's this idea? Like, they're putting it together with the idea that they want to accelerate things, subvert things, and kill off the people they don't like. So I think the ONA, in that regard, you have to see it as the uh, desired intent, the, you know, the consequences of their desired intent to me. So... One I mean, that's a whole other book in itself is all of these it, kind of Intel influenced it movements. Is. And it really is. It I really mean, is. I was shocked to find out I was talking to um, Hans Uter and the Course in Miracles was a comes out of MK Ultra. Like it was all this person was like an MK Ultra psychologist putting together this book that's still going around. And Marianne Williamson saying it's legit. I had people I grew up with who loved the Course in Miracles. And it's almost like Scientology is this self-training you are, quote, guided, but you're literally programming yourself psychologically by using the Course of Miracles. It's incredible. It's incredible. Nobody, I just like you said, people who are reading the ONA, they don't know its Genesis story. They probably don't even know who the hell, you know, Mayat is or Savitri Devi or some of these other characters, but they're, they're, they're integrating the concepts and ideas. And the same thing, the same thing with this Course of Miracles. They have no idea. I would say 99% of the people who come across A Course in Miracles, which is a very well put together, you know, it's almost like its own Bible. That I would say 99% have no idea that it has an MK Ultra, uh, you know, behavioral science, psychological background at all. Think about how amazing just that is. I mean, I know it's out of the context of, well, it's within the context of this conversation, but just the idea that there's this book out there that's supposedly providing you with spiritual insight was literally out of like a, a funded program from the United States government. It's incredible. So 
Well, it's clear that the the feds are still involved in the in certain ONA circles, and it makes sense because the federal involvement within like national socialists and neo Nazi roots goes so far deep. Yeah, I mean that it, it totally makes sense that they're poking around groups that are um, that are extreme negative that have extreme negative yeah. eugenicist views. Um, yeah, so there's it's no also, doubt. I mean, we can talk yeah. offline. I don't like to give away government things. I think are government ops, but. Some of these. Well, there, there is there is public research. There is public research for that, though, right? We're not just speculating. There is the DeSimone research, right? Which is which is which doesn't prove it actually, because if you read the research in itself, it only proves that someone is uh, accusing Sutter of being a federal asset. There actually is no tangible proof that he has been a federal asset. Was there's no like you know sh like you know log sheets or anything like that that would prove it. There's just some guy in a court case accusing him. Which, well, it's not just some guy. It was an attorney, right? Was an attorney, a, the attorney for one of the people who went to jail. So Correct. He's a member of the court, but I think he had, didn't he have, I mean, he had specific numbers of what Souter was getting paid, right? Wasn't that revealed or something at some point that Souter made like 180,000 over 15 years or something? I don't know. That's an interesting, I don't know if I saw a freedom of information. I have to go back and I'll have to go back and look. Because I'd like to I see I think that it was exposed in the, about yeah, was it? Yeah, no, it was exposed in the in the court documents. I think it was something the government handed over. I've got to go back and double check. I have it in my book. So let me see. It was the reason they put it is they had an unnamed person, but the the reason they thought it was Suter is because they know that he was busted for a silencer, right, in two thousand four or two thousand five. So I think that that's how somebody said, "Hey." It was like uh, somebody who was getting charged knew that it said it was probably him. And he's always under suspicion. He had been under suspicion for like 20 years. And it, and it makes sense. The Temple of Blood was the most extremist um, in terms of the literature, and they were very public with it. So, I mean, the, the, fa the thought that the feds weren't already in there is very far-fetched, is more far-fetched than the fact that the feds were in there. So that uh, that that kind of comports with me. And I think at the end of the day – that's, that has to scare a lot of people as well, the fact that the feds are in there because – or the, the chance that the feds are in there because, I mean, the, the, the footprint, their ideas and symbology, like the footprint uh, that, that can be found online with their ideas and symbology is so massive. Um, right. You just – you take any specific ONA or Anton Long word that's kind of like you know known to him or you, you type it into social media or you type in certain things about the ONA – and you get all kinds of social media accounts, WordPress accounts, private websites. Um, and it really, really puts it into perspective that it's impossible for everyone to be a fed, right? It's just too large. It's gotten out of the, it's gotten out of the, out of the box and it's, it was too successful. And I think that that's, that's the scandal. If it is, if it is, if it was a uh, operation to begin with is that it just worked too well and it convinced too many people and it still convinces people to this day. And it, as evidenced by the footprint that exists online. What happened if this is in the court case, it was the Caleb Cole case from Caleb 2021. Cole, yeah. And it was the, the FBI told the defense counsel for Cole that they had a confidential informant as part of the investigation on Cole, paid him hand, handsomely. Since 2003, he has been paid over $140,000 for this work. More importantly, the CI has been paid 78000 plus 4,000 since February 2018, which almost entirely coincides with his work on the investigation into Mr. Cole and Adam Wofford. So they had him pretty much named. I forgot what really they traded, traced it back to Souter. 
I think it was just the fact that they knew that something happened to him in 2003. Anyway, it didn't work. Didn't get the guy out. Didn't get cut off. Mm-hmm. It was like a motion to suppress. They wanted to suppress the evidence because the guy was. Oh, I forgot what it was. Yeah, but it was. I mean, it's Christopher Black, it's an attorney in, in Washington. Yeah, you're right. The fact that it's an attorney making that assertion is stronger because they they are they have insurance and they are they actually have a. Uh, um, they are, well, I mean, if you lie in court documents, you get punted from the practice of law. I mean, you're gone. Correct. Yeah, they're, they're, they have more responsibility than a typical person in front of a court. Um, so, but you're right. I, I think in general, as I said, there's no hard proof that Sutter was a Fed, but it's it, it wouldn't surprise anybody. And the evidence is is there. It exists. So, Well, here's um, another interesting informant. I had another guest on who talked about the Rockefeller family was, uh, was fin- secretly financially supporting... Uh, was it George Lincoln Rockwell? So he was getting money from like some elites to do what he was doing. So he could have easily been puppeteered too, like just another Nazi, you know, with with elite support. I gotta find that guy. I gotta he had he had a really interesting book. I can't remember his name off him. But he uh it was about this island where like the elite go and hang out near Washington Washington, DC. And it's almost like Robert Mueller hangs out there, like it's just this whole kind of secret to non-spoken about uh, aristocratic island where so many people just hang out and talk all the time. But one of the Rockefellers was there. can't remember. Anyway, so these guys these guys uh, have some interesting backgrounds. But yeah, Savitri Devi was pretty remarkable. It says here that she was part of the Sicker Heights Deans for four years. Part of the intelligence agency of the SS and Nazi party. That's the point I'm making. So I don't think anybody's made that point already. People have talked about the Gladio connections to Maya, but at the end of the day, that's actually not the strongest point that Maya was a federal asset. The strongest point is that you have Savitri Debbie, who is clearly an asset. I mean, God damn, she, it has to be a 99 percentile in my opinion, because you're not traveling Europe at that time, engaging in all these national socialist, um, 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 Without um, giving out information, yeah. Meetings. Act, being, she's basically a national socialist activist after the war. Right. There's right. no way. There's no way. She. The, I mean, everyone was running and hiding, right? They were hanging right. anyone who was even tangentially associated with Hitler, let alone a fucking spy. Yeah, Scorzani almost got greased. I mean, how he got out was uh, kind of a mystery. Like, he must somebody pulled some strings for him, but. So he might have, have pulled strings for them, yeah. So yeah, so you have this basically Savitri Devi, who's could basically like a 99 percentile involved with the some intelligence operation, go getting input into Colin Jordan's circle. Myatt's there, who already has his previous associations with the feds, the Gladio connection. Um, and then they they combine together, and then the ONA doctrine is produced right there at that time. Right. Um so that's that to me is stronger evidence than the Gladio connection. Although the Gladio connection, uh, I mean, I think uh, some other researchers are, have been kept kind of um, proven that anyone kind of involved with that likely had um, ties to um, federal operations. Right. I mean, they were kind of quasi federal operations anyway. Right. I mean, that's my understanding of all the different Gladio groups all throughout Europe had kind of fascist, if not outright fascist. Uh, connections mm-hmm. cia was supporting all of it too my understanding through fake you know funds and fake fronts things like that 
And as I said, I think that that's the most interesting question or point to make about the ONA is that if it was likely started as a intelligence operation, you have to assess how crazy out of control it's gotten to the point where it's basically just leaked. It's now open source. Nobody know. nobody, I mean, multiple people have written under Anton Long, multiple people have written under Chloe, you know, all, you know, nobody is who they say they are a hundred percent. It's, it's gotten so out of the control where it's impossible for somebody like Von Nudigem who's reading this to decipher that it's fake. Um, it's impossible. And they, they read it to this day and they believe they, they adhere to it. Um, and they believe it's, it's, um, it's gospel or it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it really is what it's, what it purports to be, which is, you know, an elite form of Satanist, Satanism. Um, and, um, that's kind of an, that's kind of the point that I think people need to realize is there's some kind of weird thing here where, you know, this got so far out of the bang. It was such a good operation. It was built so well and stylized so well that it, it basically just, you know, was way too successful and the, it cannot be reined in. Right. I mean, you can, you see the feds are trying to rein in certain things by they're, they're doing what it's obvious what they were doing with Sutter. They were publishing very extremist material and trying to goat people into contacting them. It's the same thing that Chloe was doing, very, very similar, right? Publish certain controversial material and stylize it in a way where you're hoping that people who are thinking similar will contact you and will will, will get on your radar. Um, and um, and uh, those are people who have, you know, it's just gotten out of control. And that's, that's why the feds are still in it now is because they realize that um, – in my opinion, there may be people out there committing, you know, negative eugenics stylized murders um, that are somewhere in between or on like uh, extremist national socialist views or Satanist views. Um, and yeah. Interesting. Somebody in the chat said, I just heard the president of Proud Boys was a Fed, so you kind of have a right wing group. Uh, you know, who's informing. I think another one of the Proud Boys got busted for talking to the FBI. So it's just kind of interesting, kind of overlap. As I said, the roots go very, very deep with that. And I think at the end of the day, it's so hard to tell where the roots stop and start as it relates to the federal connections to national socialist uh, extremism, especially. Um, so to, to, to think that they're already involved in the ONA or they are involved in the ONA is very obvious. And I think it's very likely, um, but it should still scare people because obviously they're there for a reason and they're working on it for a reason and they're trying to entrap people for a reason. And that reason is because they believe them to be dangerous and, or have committed crimes. Right. I mean, that another example is just, they're clearly monitoring or were monitoring Brandon Russell, right? They're on, they were, somebody with a confidential informant was on this uh, encoded, encrypted chat device. I don't think they even mentioned it in the court documents, which I read into the record, but they were keeping an eye on him. And there have been infrastructure explosions. I mean, some of these infrastructure explosions may be done by some of these lunatic far rightists, I don't know, or far left. I don't have any idea. But they're clearly talking about it in Russell and all these other characters, but... He's going to go away for a long time. Mm-hmm. He's going to go in for another 20 years, probably. So you want to chat a little bit about the SFK? I do. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, I think we, uh, I think the the previous stuff we just talked about gives kind of anyone who was interested in our first video, which seemed to be the most popular one, kind of a little bit more to chew on as it relates to the theory. 
Um, but um, the SFK, I mean, it could, the SFK is, is a body on its own as is, is kind of a topic on its own. And it can be discussed and analyzed from a criminological perspective without kind of um, assessing any type of philosophy or ideology you believe is involved. Um, and I think that's important because there's so many cases around the world and it's impossible for one ideology or one person or one suspect to be responsible for all of them. Um, the, the, it's a high probability that there's multiple ideologies, multiple motives, multiple people all around the world that have nothing to do with each other, but are still using this modus operandi, right. Um, right. which which is why I don't necessarily um, I'm not necessarily all in on trying to find out what ideology is responsible. I just, you know, the reason why I'm into the ONA is because I see the connections. But at the end of the day, I admit, like, you know, a normal person should, that the modus operandi is very polished and and very good. And that it's it's very, it's kind of egotistical to think that just one person or one ideology or, you know, one group of people is responsible for all the cases around the world. I mean, that's just, that's just right. There's definitely a mystery, but uh, people are sharing this idea through chat rooms or dark web or something like that. Like I'd never, when I did that first movie in 2017, like my real focus was kind of like the homosexual underworld. Like I still haven't, it hasn't left me. Some of these people, there's an over proportion or over abundance of like kind of, you know, gay LGBT themes in some of these deaths. There's no question about it. So those may not even have anything to do with this kind of esoteric Nazism, ONA Nazism. They're just, they're just, they just view the, the footprints that people, other people have left for them, right? They, they're, they're watching the news. They see how other people get the job done, right? And then they use right. the same modus operandi, right? Um, and I think we talked about this, that the modus operandi can be superimposed into multiple, multiple motives and work very well for those motives. Um, right. I think there was even one with a girl, you know, she died in the river. There was one case that I saw outside of Sacramento, I think it was, where she had some, mis- I mean, I don't think she actually drowned in the river. Somebody put her in there. That was an old case, though. Same, same MO. So. I don't even yeah. know what happened to that case. So, so on the smiley face killers, um, I think one of the most interesting parts, I mean, I, I love to talk about how you want to convince someone about the cases, because at the end of the day, there's like a zombie like mass public support for the accidental drowning theory. And this to me doesn't make any sense because there's objectively inconclusive evidence on both sides of the spectrum. When you take into account the entire caseload or the, the entire, um, the entire sample size. So how can society be so certain on one side of the coin for all of the deaths? We're talking about the whole sample size when there is such inconclusive evidence. Um, And to me, that's one of the things where I notice right away in people's reasoning, right? They have the mass zombie like public support for the accidental drowning theory, and they will discount anyone who says otherwise. Um, But it's, simply negligent reasoning for society to blindly discard the potential for foul play play without prima facie evidence being present on either side of the argument. Right. Um, It's kind of like an, their, 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 their zombie like narrative is kind of like erroneously substantiated and it's kind of hindered intellectual desire uh, to find the actual murder murders that exist within the caseload. Because I mean, we're talking about the whole sample size, um, it's almost certain because of how even the prima facie evidence is that there's a mixed case, a mixed 
um, case, uh, the, the caseload is mixed in terms of there are accidental drownings and there are murders in the caseload. The question is you have to find which ones are which and what differentiates one from the other. Um, what you can't do is what society is doing is taking the entire sample size and putting it under one ilk, which is the accidental drowning ilk. Um, and there's not enough evidence to do that. And currently, I believe, I mean, nobody has proven otherwise that there is enough evidence to take that stance. Um, and also, most people repeating the accidental drowning mantra are not aware of the arguments supporting the foul play theory. Right. That's true. Right. I mean, I these arguments, these arguments don't like tip the scale completely towards foul play, but they kind of reinforce the notion that it's an ill-advised for society to blindly expect or uh, accept the prevailing narrative. Um, and so I, I kind of want to go into that a little bit. A, a point, a point you mentioned recently, I can't remember where um, was, and I believe we talked about that in the first video was the fact that there's no evidence of the person entering the water. Right. In any in any of the cases, so we have a large sample size. Let's say that two to four, two to four, two to five hundred cases. We're talking two on the conservative end, five on the on the uh, liberal end. Um, cases where there is zero prima facie evidence as to why why or how the person entered the water. So, I mean, I find this particularly interesting because for critics. Um, so given the sheer number of relevant cases, right? We know there's a lot of cases, right, Will? Yeah, 300, 400. Cr critics of the foul play theory argue that serial killers would have already been caught by CCTV or witnesses during the abduction or drowning process, right? So for these critics, the lack of real and electronic evidence of abduction is kind of like a nail in the coffin for proponents of the foul play theory. And they use it kind of like as a shield, right? Okay, so... There's no evidence of abduction, no evidence of drowning, right? There's no CCTV footage. There's no witnesses. So it can't be that because there's just been too many cases. Nobody's that good, right? right. Nobody's that successful. Um, to me, this is faulty reasoning because the same argument can be equally used to discredit the accidental drowning theory. Like accidents by nature are random, right, Will? Right. A victim doesn't plan where they decide to succumb to an accident. Conversely, a successful serial killer would, in theory, meticulously plan the locations of abductions to ensure a lack of human and electronic witnesses. So, in my opinion, it's mathematically implausible for all of the relevant cases to have no prima facie evidence supporting why or how the victim entered the water. But yet, that is the reality. This lack of prima facie evidence is clearly, in my opinion, indicative of human design or intervention uh, intervention and not random phenomenon which would have you know be the opposite there would be cases scattered where you know you would have 20 30 percent of the cases where there's strong prima facie evidence of the person entering the water or why or how they entered the water um right i mean but also the other thing is that there's so uh, the assumption that there's no cctv evidence is an assumption because there might be there that just cops haven't done the basic groundwork to find it or look into stuff or they haven't connected it i mean we've made they this connected it we've made this i go back to stephen port stephen port the family went and said can we see the cctv and then they say who's that guy walking with my brother they literally the police bungled it i think there's still an inquest going on. i don't think the inquest has been completed but um as to why the police bungled the stephen port and how many people stephen port actually killed but yeah so the assumption that there's no cctv is uh 
because they might pick somebody up on CCTV an hour before the abduction even takes place, right? You know, you, they don't know. Like they could be just be people loitering around. So I don't, I don't believe that. So if you take the entire sample size, it's the best way to analyze the cases because when you think about it from a mathematical perspective, if there's a large sample size and a limited prima facie evidence in either direction, the Bayesian inference is that there's a split distribution. And that's what we have. We have a, a large sample size and the evidence doesn't teeter in either direction, which insinuates that there is a split distribution. There's a split distribution between murders and drownings. Um, some are accidents while others are foul play. But what's happening is we see intellectual bankruptcy in the media because they're using one explanation for the entire sample size when the evidence doesn't dictate that much certainty. And even if there's, let's say there's 20% murders, I believe the smiley face killers are vindicated. Smiley face killer researchers are vindicated. If there's 10%, I believe we're vindicated because just there's so many cases. Yeah. So that would mean so many murders have been swept under the rug. Um, and I believe the evidence is so even that it's more likely that it might be a 50, close to a 50, 50 distribution, which is really scary to believe um, because this zombie like narrative has kind of quashed any desire within society to find the murders within the caseload. They just sweep them all under the same rug, right? All under the same ilk. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it's these 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 events. I mean, Deep Dive did done a whole thing on debunking the failed debunkers. There, these events are obviously foul play to me. I mean, I've looked at enough of them. The bodies are missing for a long period of time. They're not necessarily drowned. The medical examiners of chump, like the guy, the one in Dakota, uh, what was his name? Dakota James. The medical example examiner bungled it. Totally bungled it. Totally proven by uh, Cyril Wecht. I could have figured it out. I'm not a medical examiner, but I would have gone, what's that rope burn around his neck? It's obvious. Didn't even write it in the freaking medical exam. So, I mean, the whole country's infested with chumps. But that's a whole other story. So that's the pro that's one another problem, really, with people being so certain about the accidental drowning theory is that they're ignoring all of the investigative inconsistencies associated with the accidental drowning narrative. Right. Yeah. Right. So right. the narrative, the kind of the accidental drowning narrative, is clearly incongruent with many circumstances surrounding the nature of the disappearances. Right. No, um, it's almost actually laughable. It is laughable. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was kind of laughing as I said yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. In many, like in many of the cases, so a couple of the inconsistencies are. Um, really interesting. So if the first one being um, distance that the person has to travel. So in many of the cases, the victims found in a body of water were relatively far from the, from the location where they were last seen. Um, but so this, this, this is weird because if the victim was sentient enough to walk the distance required to get to the accident location, how did they suddenly lose the sentient capabilities needed to exit the water after falling in? How did they fall in to begin with? Right. Because we're assuming that they're so drunk that they fell in, but yet they were sentient enough to get to that point, right? Where they walked all that way and they, you know, they were, you know, they got to that point. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons of problems. Well, another problem is the CCTV footage. I mean, you just listed one. There's cases where people are seen completely sentient on CCTV prior to right. disappearing. right. And that has not been explained to this day because the, the accidental drowning theory is contingent 
on all of these victims being way too drunk to be able right. to, to do anything. That has never yeah, been explained. There's one on, and I think in Manchester, one of the canal deaths, uh, there was a guy upright talking to somebody, and the police never found out who the guy he was talking to was. So that CCTV video exists. They just never found out who the person was. And I think he was uh, a guy from India, an Indian background or South Asian. And uh, his dad, I forgot his name. I remember I have his dad in the second documentary. But they know the police just bungled that. I mean, there's a lot. I'm pretty critical of law enforcement. Sometimes they get it right, but. A lot of times they just are swamped or they just didn't look into it enough or the guy was gay, so they don't care. Yeah, you said you said a good example. That's Dakota James. As I recall, there's a very clear CCTV footage right before he disappeared. There's no other footage of him afterwards anywhere in the area of him just walking normally, very sentient texting. You know, you wouldn't ever believe that there's anything, you know, that would affect him to the point where he would lose all sentient capabilities, become a vegetable and fall in the water. Right. He was a, he was a head of his swim team in, in high school. So I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know that actually. Yeah. yeah. He was in good shape. Um, and he's has his head down and texting at the same time, walking through one of the parks there in uh, Pittsburgh. So it just doesn't, it doesn't fly. Yeah. I, I would say a couple of the other kind of smaller investigative inconsistencies with the accidental drowning theory are the blood alcohol content readings. Um, they don't, a lot of these cases, the readings don't mesh with the loss of sentient capabilities. Um, They're just not high enough in my opinion. Right. I mean, obviously everyone's different if alcohol affects everyone differently, but um, as I said, it just, some of these alcohol content readings, they don't jive with the, with the public narrative that this person was way too drunk. And that is the um, fatal reason why they ended up dying. Um, That's what caused their death. Um, and that, that doesn't, that's an inconsistency in my, I believe a pretty strong one. Um, also, I mean, uh, one that gets talked about a lot, another investigative inconsistency is, um, recovering bodies and locations that were previously searched. Right. Um, Franco Garcia comes to mind as one, just, you know, that is a Obvious, slam dunk, yeah. Yeah. slam, slam dunk where they searched yeah. the entire area with divers, never found them. Then I think a couple weeks later, a week later, he's found in that spot. The other one was the Maniac one. What was the kid from Maniac? Oh, I see his face. It was in outside of Philadelphia, where it was like the the water was three feet deep, and they found <laughs> they found his keys, but they couldn't find his body. And then his body shows up two weeks later. Remember that one? God, what was that? Well, you could probably type Maniac drowning. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know the year. You'll probably find it pretty quickly. I don't recall. I have a really good memory of a lot of cases, and I don't particularly recall that one. So, yeah, that was uh, Shane Montgomery, twenty-four. Oh, I should, I should. Yeah, that's a very famous case. I don't know why I didn't remember that case. I haven't, I haven't read it in a while. Yeah, that's a, that's a one. That's another one where the drowning is just a total joke. So not, not drunk enough. He only had like two drinks. Yeah, Montgomery. Yeah, Shane Montgomery. Look that one up. That's a that's an important case. Now it was this. Jimmy Slack was there too. Jimmy Slack was in Philadelphia. He was at some party and was found in water. Who's the other ones around there? Oh, um, I think it was one of the one of the Gannon cases in in, Phil, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, where he was in, the, and they went and looked in the back of the bar, and they couldn't find his body, and then it showed up nine days later. That was. Uh, Tommy Booth. Tommy Booth, yes. 
Tommy Booth. Um, yeah, so to me, I'm thinking about all these investigative inconsistencies as it relates to the mathematical balance of probabilities as it relates to the evidence. And I, I'm wondering, how can society, how can the prevailing narrative be so certain of their findings when it's objectively clear that the accidental drowning theory contains many investigative inconsistencies? Right. Like, shouldn't the presence of these inconsistencies require more thorough investigation from law enforcement? No doubt. Is it is no it not doubt. is it not possible for criminals to exploit these loopholes, these investigative loopholes? That's all the, they do, right? The, Isn't that all they do? Isn't that what the, they do in financial crimes or go somewhere the cops aren't paying attention? Yeah, for the purposes of obfuscating their crimes, right? They exploit the loopholes. Right. And it's it's funny because these are these are kind of questions that require deep societal introspection before the official narrative can 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 kind of like balance. Um and I don't know if we're quite there yet, but um, one day maybe. Yeah, they just don't understand the motive. They don't. People don't understand the motive, so they can't quite get it. They can understand husband killing his wife or shootings, at, you know, racially based shootings or financial crimes. They can't seem to understand why people go out at night and select somebody for harm doing. They don't get it because most people don't think like that, right? You, you it's probably why like people like. Jeffrey Dahmer got along, got along was got away with murders for so long because they just don't think like that. And that the the other guy Herb uh, Herb, what's the guy? Baumeister. Baumeister. Yeah, where because society was just there's just um, insane lifestyle assumptions made about the victims, uh, insane stereotypes made about the victims, which prevented anyone from deciding to look into the victims. Um, there's which another very, killer, very another German last name killer around there. His name was Eiler. We did the same thing. Baumeister, Eiler, and Dahmer were all like uh, homosexual ki uh, killers. Incredible. Eiler was smart, though. He crossed jurisdictions. He crossed state lines, and probably he had help, too. One of, he wasn't doing it alone. One of the reasons, and I think you nailed this in the pre when we were chatting in the pre-show, pre um, but one of the reasons why people are unable to come to terms with balancing the... the um, narrative is because of the lifestyle assumptions um and invest like kind of like investigatory opinion assumptions that get made about these victims and how that results in people just you know deciding that they were somehow responsible for what they did right 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 yeah. i mean to me, to me that that has to be the most remarkable aspect of the sfk phenomenon and it's how the assumptions about the victim's lifestyle exclusively govern public and investigatory opinion um so like in the eyes of the public and investigators if the victim was unwise and immoral enough to binge drink and leave a bar alone at an odd hour by themselves they are complicit in their ultimate fate we don't need to know what happened to them we just need to know that they were somehow in some way responsible and thus they don't deserve um, justice or they don't deserve a thorough investigation or um, they, they, you know, they, they put themselves in that scenario. And this assumption of complicity, right? The victim was complicit in their death is more potent if the victim ends up in water because it perfects the narrative surrounding the dangerous trope of mixing alcohol and water. Right. If the victim's not found in water, it's harder to have that same lifestyle assumption. But if the victim ends up in water, it perfects that trope, which is, you know, when you're drinking, be careful near water. Right. 
Look at this guy's face, Baumeister. You would never think he was a full-on serial killer. I think he killed 23 people. At least 23. It's incredible. Yeah, Baumeister, so sim so similar to the SFK murders. He would target people coming from bars or that he met at bars. Um, he targeted people who um, have um, who are stereotyped by police. Um, police throughout his entire killing spree believed all the victims were just had transient lifestyles because they were homosexual, and because of their lifestyle, um, they didn't they, they you know they, that was the explanation for them going missing was their lifestyle. It wasn't actually a killer, um, which is what's happening with the SFK case. You know, people are assuming that it's their lifestyle that killed them and not actually a killer. Um, and um, it took it took them a long time for them to for them to catch Bowmeister. And actually he might never have been caught if he continued his modus operandi. He let one guy go, right? Like he, I think the reason he got caught is he was doing some really freaky shit with one guy who got out and called the cops and, um, and uh, they started investigating him and they found all the bodies on his property. Um, and what's interesting is he fled to Ontario and then he committed suicide. So I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of indication that he might have had accomplices, and that he might have been murdered, murdered by accomplices to keep quiet. Um, because if you're going to commit suicide, I don't think you f you flee all that way across the border. I mean, you do that if you're trying to hide. You don't do that if you commit suicide. Right. If you commit suicide, you just do it. Do it. That's, right. You just do it. He was trying to go and hide. Maybe one of his accomplices lived there. Um, maybe that's where he was, you know, told to go, you know, hide, lay low and somebody obviously killed him in my opinion. Um, or he committed suicide as possible, but somebody may, might have killed him, um, to ensure that, um, whatever was really happening with these cases didn't get out because I don't believe he's responsible. I don't think, believe he could have, he could have done what they said, which is 23 deaths all on his own. He buried them all by himself. He had no help. He didn't do it, you know, with anyone else, right? He just, you know, did all the digging himself. He, uh, all the all the sexual mischievous nature stuff was all him, right? And it was nobody else, right? I, I don't necessarily believe that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I did another show. What was the guy's name? It was Kraft in the L.A. Killed like 100 people. And, and uh, McDonough, who was the author of that book, said there's no way he could have acted alone. Because somebody had to be driving when some of the bodies got chucked out of the cars. So some of these guys are working in tandem. Same thing with Eiler. It was Kolarek was her name. That's the author. Um, but she's like, yeah, Eiler had this other guy who was just suspected to be an accomplice, but they never never busted him. And Eiler died of AIDS, I think, if I remember correctly. But yeah, Herb Baumeister. I would say, I would say the last thing that kind of prevents the uh, narrative from balancing despite the fact that the evidence is pretty even right doesn't lean in either direction um, is kind of like the economic and political perspective um, also that kind of goes into the political aspect of the police culture um, right yeah. hyper political right hyper political yeah. environment I mean it, it is understandable that politicians and law enforcement would in the absence of evidence in either direction lean heavily towards the accidental drowning theory. I mean this ensures students keep coming back, politicians keep getting reelected, um, you know, nobody right. gets fired, everyone gets right. I, I was talking to one guy, it was I think it was uh, oh gosh, who was it? I've had so many interviews, but he said it was the Amityville, you know, Jaws uh, excuse, right? There's no problem in the water. There's no shark, right? Get everybody back here. 
right? And there's so much money involved in that, especially if we just talk about the Wisconsin cases, the fact that all the Wisconsin universities are under the same banner of University of Wisconsin, right? They're like called University of Wisconsin Whitewater, University of Wisconsin um, of Wisconsin um, Madison. Um, You know, they all have, you know, University of Wisconsin, but they're where they are. And it's, you know, it makes you think there's a whole network of universities there, the amount of money that gets poured in there. Um, It's almost like the killers are making a statement like, you know, we could be as blatant as we want. Um, you still are not going to have any motive or any desire to to call out your previous errors or, your, you know, the fact that, you know, we've been getting away with this for 20 years, 20 plus years. Don't you think it's the instincts of all universities is to keep all these negative tales on the down low? Just a, the first instinct is just keep quiet. They have publicists, right? And it's all about the money. I mean, the, the amount of money that must flow into this Wisconsin university with 23 oh, campuses. Huge. They, they, they do not. And not only the amount of money that flows into the university, but also into the um, city, right? So you're talking about right. um, uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, where there was like a tw- 10, 12 cases um, in this right. tiny little area over the course of 15 years. And in that area, right, a city like that, they have so much money that pours into the actual community, bars, restaurants, uh, clothing shops, right? It's a trickle-down effect, which completely would be destroyed if, you know, they, they, they took a more reasonable stance saying, you know, there is probably a reasonable chance that there's a mixed percentage within these cases and they're not all accidental drownings, which is probably the more reasoned stance that, you know, they would Billions. Take. I would say billions of dollars. I mean, some of these huge university systems are bigger than some countries, like the amount of money too. And they're also, they play a lot of stuff on the stock stock market too. Like a lot of these uh, universities have been upgraded for their uh, positions in stocks and stuff like that because they become kind of like financial institutions. They don't just take the money and put it back in, but they take all their funds and and gamble on the stock market. It's pretty amazing. But yeah, anyway. So, so the, so I want to say this as well. So, so obviously we're talking about the economic and political perspective. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious that, that there's an obvious criminological exploit or loophole that this creates. And I mean, theoretically, obviously we know that how the smile face killers work, but theoretically a killer could take advantage of this financial and political influence since it appears to preemptively limit or quash any discussion of foul play as it pertains to a particular subset of victim, right? So as long as you're targeting a particular subset of victim within this financial and political climate, you are able to dissuade um, discussion of foul play. And I believe that that's a criminological loophole, uh, which I, obviously the smiley face killers, in my opinion, have been taken advantage of. Yeah, no doubt. no doubt. They're getting away with it. They're getting away with it. Yeah, the, the mainstream narrative is just way too certain of its findings, despite a lack of prima facie evidence. There's too many strong political and monetary influences at work, which are primarily concerned with establishing a narrative that doesn't threaten their careers or perpetual cash cow, right? Given, like, given the, I want to say given the sheer number of applicable cases, it's almost certain that this, that this type of anti-investigatory narrative and behavior has resulted in many, many murders being hidden from the public. Um, and I think it's a great anthropological study as well, uh, type of topic. It is. It definitely is. It definitely is. And I think that's probably some of these people have been 
like caught. Like I always think of what Katunsky or whatever. Like he only got popped for one murder, but I bet some of these guys are, who are getting caught for one murder have done more. They've killed more people. So I have, I have like a case. Baumeister I, only got busted for thirteen, but suspected in twenty-three. Right. I have a case where a guy got caught in England uh, prowling the red light district with a with a uh, taser gun. Right. Oh, this is the type of case where I believe you know you could have potentially caught some people who are exercising the smiley face killer murder modus operandi, but you would never know, right? Because right. you just, it's so hard to connect this type of, right. It's so, especially when society hasn't fully believed that these are murders, it's so hard to right. connect where you got a guy, you catch him in the red light district. He has a taser and he has rope and he has handcuffs. Right. But I mean, how do you connect a guy like that? I mean, it's just, it would be impossible, right. It, it would be so hard. And even if they did, they might not, make the assumption that there's any greater killings going on it would just be a, a one-time thing um like the, the, it's it's hard to connect them to the greater caseload um All right i always think of this guy reinhardt sanaga in a place where there's always suspected like uh deaths in these canals you know he was the most prolific rapist in uk history so he was drugging people he's doing kind of the mo getting people coming out of bars classic who were and assaulted 48 men and uh, they think that he had at least 195 victims based on films found on his phone. That's how they only knew. It's because he kept the paraphernalia of his conquest. But how many of those people died? Maybe he had to dump bodies. You know, he was giving them the GHB treatment. Incredible. Incredible. You know, he never got busted. He just got busted for rapes. But this is fairly recent. So and it's it's it, 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 it it's exacerbated by the fact that it's obvious that whoever's committing these crimes are are stylizing them in a way so that they don't get caught, right? They're they're stylizing them in a in a uh, in a motiveless way, right? A motiveless motive op, modus operandi uh, for the main reason, like they, it's stylized in a um, leaderless resistance type of way um, for a reason. Right. It's 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 so that if one person does get caught, it, you know, how could you ever possibly associate them with any other cases around the world right. or right. the modus operandi? Perfect um, example. Among a circle of friends with whom he frequently went clubbing in the LGBT neighborhood, his horrific crimes were met with shock. He was known as cheerful and giggly and was known to go out most days of the week. And he also was a member of like a church, like a woke church, St. John of Christomostas or whatever it was. I forgot what it was, but like. On the surface, you never know. This guy's a freaking heavy-duty serial rapist with 195 victims. So these guys are criminally sophisticated. That's a that's a sophisticated criminal. The only reason this guy got popped is they found his phone and all the evidence was on his phone. That's incredible. And that and that's what's funny is that if somebody is truly committing um, crimes in this manner. Um, the modus operandi is to hide it from the police, right? Which is why it's so dangerous is because the, the people, you know, everyone's concerned, okay, what's the motive? But in the end, the motive may not be the most important thing. The, the most important thing may be just, you know, the actual modus operandi and the fact that it's being, you know, copied and used by multiple people with, you know, that may not have the same motive. My cat is being a pest. <laughs> She has to come in whenever she wants. She cannot have the door closed or else she starts whining. Well, we're almost, we've done almost two hours. Is there anything you'd like to wrap up with? Um, 
No, I think we've done a good job. Um, I uh, I appreciate you having me back. Yeah, my pleasure. And um, I like I always like to talk uh, about the SFK or the ONA. Those are two topics that certainly uh, uh, interest me considerably from a criminological and from an anthropological perspective. Um, and I believe they should interest everyone else in society as well. And I you know I, I believe so. a lot of the interest is being swept under the rug um, for the reasons we just discussed. Um, a lot of the kind of like the, the, the balance of probabilities with the evidence is being swept under the rug and people people believe there's a stronger balance of probabilities than there actually is as it relates to the accidental drowning theory. And I believe if people knew that it was as balanced as it was, the narrative might start to change and they, they might start to realize that there are murders in these caseloads. Um, and just to, the question is just how many, right? Just right. how many. How's it going on and how, who learned, where did they find the MO? How did it get? spread around the world i think is a good question i also uh, on that on that note i don't know if it necessarily needed to be spread in the sense but if you're reading the news or watching the news um you see the footprints left by other people and how they get right. it done right all you need to do is look into the smiley face killer theory and realize this is really good this i could i could do this i could i could do that this. right exactly i could drug um, and, yeah so you just the need other to thing is the like you're not in any crime they're not done until somebody gets killed right so some of these people are just like the Sanaga guy. They're just getting busted for drugging people, you know, just like, just like Dahmer actually was drugging people left and right. So at what point does the turn into a you know crime? What do these people do? It's crazy. It's crazy out there. People have to be very careful out of bars, men and women. Well, Sanaga was operating in Manchester where there's a huge concentration of SFK stylized cases. There is. There's a lot. So, I'm wondering if you ever, question. yeah, it's a good question. Did he kill anybody? Just like or did he dispose any him. dispose any of his victims in the manner that, um, right? Because I, I there's a lot of victims that were just disappeared and found in canals. Who knows, right? right? It could have been a, a couple of those could have been victims of him. There's no doubt. Right, no doubt. Where's the best place for people if they want to reach out to you, Igor? Uh, I would say Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Igor Sarsky. Cool. So people can reach out if they have any further questions or anything like that. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk oh, with you again. Yeah, definitely. Have a good night. You too. Let's do that.